Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Ben Murky. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. Uh, our bi, is it bi-weekly or bi-monthly? I've never figured it out. Every two weeks, we have another podcast that we do. Uh, I have uh, never asked somebody to come back, uh, but uh, t- today I will ask somebody to come back, and we'll find out all about that in a moment. These are times that I was looking at, uh, I still have two relatively young <clears throat> sons in my charge, and I was looking at them and thinking, this will be so seminal to their lives that they will have lived through this pandemic. Uh, and I also worried very much for them, for their mental health and for their spiritual health, uh, because of how much they've been deprived of. That we, There's so much we take for granted. You know, People always had the choice to see other people. Oh, I, I'm not going to that party. I don't want to see these. I, I, I'm, I'm staying home. I'm sick of people. And now we realize the importance that people have in life and what it means to come together. You know, that idea that when two or more of us are together, there is God. Well, perhaps that's in the energy that flows between us as, as souls. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about having a soul, um, but I'm more attracted to the people who say that we are souls, not that we have one, because then that's just a compartment of who we are. And then there's all these other pieces and they're all compartments. You can open or close them as you want. But what's come to bear is this idea that we are actually a a social group uh, in so many ways that we had taken for granted. And when I look at my high school aged child who's missing those years, those beginning years of adolescence of coming together with other kids and you know, what are boys about? What are girls about? What's, you know, what's all this about? How do I look in this? How do I feel in this? And instead they're being asked to be home. And in the province of Ontario now, there's a movement to be able to say, well, you know, we can continue to do this next year. If you don't want your kids to go to school in person, they can go online. The real reason in political terms for me would be that actually what they're trying to say is we don't want that many teachers. We want to cut education budgets and we can do that if you stay home. We don't need the classroom. We don't need the teacher uh, in the classroom with the special supports and the co-curriculars and all the rest of it. So I, I do hope that one of the things that comes out of this is not a desire to atomize even further, but to come together. And one of the crises uh, of this as well, and one of the benefits, oddly, is what's happening in churches and synagogues and mosques. Uh, in speaking to clerical friends of mine, some of them are saying, I, I, you know, I could do this for a long time where I actually have my services from my home and we just, you know, and they're finding they have people coming to their services virtually from all over the place. People who used to be parishioners or congregants are actually saying, well, you know what? I'd like to have a service with my my rabbi from Hamilton. So I'm going to click on that one and get into it. And there's an intimacy that is there because you don't have to dress up. You don't have to make an appearance. You don't have to schlep, as we say, to the next thing. You can just do this from your own home. Uh, So it's kind of a double-edged sword because I know that for a lot of um, clerics, the the crisis of the empty pews is real. Uh, As time has gone on, less people in many places have have decided that this is really an expression of their spiritual lives. So it'll be that and so many other things. It'll be interesting to see what do we do with this opportunity? Do we, upon reflection, improve our lives in soulful ways or do we have the roaring 20s? Do we just 
jump out of this and with all the pent up energy, spend it on buying sprees and heavy partying and all the rest of it. So questions to consider. Um, by the way, if you're interested in becoming a Patreon member of Not That Kind of Rabbi and donating to the podcast, uh, I've got that up and running now. Patreon.com slash NTKR, Not That Kind of Rabbi, NTKR. So just go to Patreon.com slash NTKR and you can donate at a lot of different levels from a little to a lot. All of them are the same in importance to me. Um, and we have some extra things to give you at those different levels. So just check it out and see if it uh, strikes your fancy. Strikes your fancy indeed. We've also got the Not Kind of Rabbi Facebook page, so you can go there as well. Or if you want to get in touch with me, I do. I am an ordained spiritual director, uh, which is spiritual counseling, personal and spiritual growth is what I do with people as clients on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And if you want that, you can just... Uh, direct message me on Twitter, go to Facebook and message me, or go to ralphbenmergie at gmail.com and send me a note. And I'd be glad to uh, get together with you and see if it's a good fit. All right, to the business at hand. The first encore performance of Not That Kind of Rabbi, a good friend of mine, and someone whose opinions, ideas, and uh, intentionality in life I deeply respect, the Reverend Michael Corrin. Hello, Reverend. How are you, sir? Hello to you. I'm uh, I'm okay. I mean, I have to admit that the lockdown is affecting me for the first time. I think it's been I've been very busy uh, since it started, and I've had ups and downs. But generally, it's been okay. But the, the last week or two, I've, I I had felt it. I felt the absence of, of travel. I, I miss Europe. I, I usually spend three or four weeks a, month, a year in Europe my friends and family in Britain. And just the, uh, it's interesting what you were talking about earlier, the intimacy, the physical intimacy and the propinquity of the community uh, at church services. Um, my theology is quite Catholic within the Anglican communion. Like the Eucharist is important to me. I haven't received the Eucharist in a very long time. Um, and just being with people in my in my community. So I, I don't know, all of this has come together and I'm okay, I'm one of the privileged ones, I'm lucky. Had my first shot and I have a lovely house and so on, um, financial security. But I, yes, I think I'm feeling it a bit for the first time. Long answer to your question. Well, but it's it's worth exploring what it is we miss and, and what effect it's having. You know, there's um, a lot of people who are having very vivid dreams Mm. Right. Your subconscious is, is has the room to surface, I think. But there's also the the small intimacies of life, the handshake, the pat on the shoulder. Yeah. You know, the the intimate conversation where you move forward towards somebody and speak to them. Mm. And now we fear each other. We see each other and we cross <laughs> the street. Right. <laughs> yeah. We smile when I'm walking the dog and uh either I or the person coming towards me, one of us moves and there's a smile of thank you, which is very nice, mm -hmm. but it's very perceptive of you. In, instead of welcoming the approach, we, we do fear it a little. And it's interesting what you said about dreams because I don't usually recall any dreams I have, but last, last week I've had a couple of very vivid dreams. And um, yesterday 
I went to, my wife had gone to work and I went to make the bed and I thought, oh, it's still warm. And I realized it was wet. Hmm. And I thought, good Lord, that dream was so vivid. Actually, it was the dog. The dog had wet the bed. <laughs> but, uh, for, for, for a brief moment, I thought, my golly, has it come to this? <laughs> <laughs> Am I nine? Am I seven? Well, the dog she, relapse. And she hasn't wet the bed since she was a puppy. Uh, well, she wasn't on the bed in those days, but now she's on the bed with us. So, uh, well, maybe it's, maybe she was having the dream. I think that that's what I put it down to. I I, I blame the dog, <laughs> love dearly, wetting the bed on uh, on COVID. But I have to say, the door is now shut to us. So, what do you think is going to happen to us uh, when we crawl out of this bizarre and existential moment? Are we going to be better for this, or is that asking too much? It's not asking too much, but I'm not sure if it will happen. I'd like to think we would. We would have learned about deprivation and inequality and fear. Um, the story of humanity is generally we forget very quickly. We forget crises very quickly. And often we go back to our former selves, which are both good and bad. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not really sure. I mean, in, in church circles, there's a lot of discussion about what we've learned. And certainly in terms of numbers, it is quite clear that um, we have to embrace the electronic world, which for me is meat and drink, because I've been doing it for a long time. I've got a very active Twitter account and Facebook. But I know clergy who say things like, oh, I don't, I don't, do, I don't do social media, which is like, someone at the time of the printing press. I, I, don't, do the, I don't do the printed word, I'm sorry. <laughs> and and I'm, I get very impatient with that because there can be a certain, not smugness, but a, a fear, I think. Yeah, a fear, a, re a reticence because they, they feel uh, out of their depth, out of their context, but also because they may feel that they'll fail at it. That Yes. Uh, I mean, all of those things are aspects of it, but we've realized that um, numbers I mean, are really quite high and sometimes higher. I, I've known this for a while. For example, I, I lead morning prayer once or twice a week. And it's quite, I mean, I know the numbers are higher than they would be if I was in the church because to be somewhere at nine o'clock in the morning, you know, mm. to actually get out of bed and make the journey there, some people do it, but much easier to just get that coffee, maybe in your pajamas still and go down and, and, to, and, so as we move forward, it'll have to be simultaneous for things like that. When it comes to Sunday service with the Eucharist, it is important to be there, but not exclusively online as well. I, I've written a bit about um, how impatient, I suppose, I get, angry, angry, at those very conservative Christians who go on about the, not having freedom of worship and so on. It's absolute nonsense. I mean, it, there's been no curtailing of freedom of worship. Freedom of assembly has been challenged for entirely valid reasons. But you can carry on worshipping. And we work very hard to put together online services, online ministry, prayer, phoning people. That's a lot of what we do. And it isn't the same. But my golly, it's not bad at all. And the numbers are high. And we have chat rooms at the beginning and the end. and So it can be done. So we've learned new ways. We've been pushed into the modern age. Uh, beyond... To general humanity will we be, be will we be be better people well look how, how the western world is going to is going to deal with this we'll have booster shots like like the flu shot we'll probably have a shot every year and we'll wear masks for a while i suspect people will then stop doing that even but 
look at the geographical global inequality, look at India. India, which is a country with the largest middle class in the history of the world, that was coming out of an age of poverty, it was meant to be blossoming, blossoming, and yet it's hellish what they're going through. And I think people do care, but not that much. And the underlying structure means that countries like India and others we're not even aware of at this point are suffering terribly. Is that going to change? I'd love to think so, but I doubt it. Well, I do find that the incidence of neglect of the virus or defiance or arrogance in the face of the, of the virus uh, coincides with authoritarian regimes. You know, in Brazil, Modi in India, um, Hungary, you know, different places, Trump, that any attempt uh, uh, to affect the narcissistic regime comes up against the idea of, no, no, I am the, uh, the divine power mm. in this situation. Mm. Uh, and this is also reflected in the ministries or the, or the uh, churches or, or religious gathering places where in some, of, in some, there is a belief that this is about God uh, and that it is in the hands of God and science is not part of the equation. It's about freedom to pursue the divine protection of God and very conflated ideas. I mean, all this f attaching freedom to the idea of allowing yourself to infect other people. You know, it's a very bizarre thing, but well, it, it's, a, it's, a, sorry, it's a whole stew of ideas. I, I know that that part of the church relatively well. It's mainly evangelical, fundamentalist evangelical, yeah. and the right wing of the Catholic Church, not the mainstream of the Catholic Church. But there's a combination. And Orthodox Judaism as well. Yes, and, and, and parts of Islam. But a lot of the, the Muslim world has been very uh, mature, I think, and sophisticated in the way they've handled it. But the... Um, I think when it comes to Orthodox Judaism, I think it's a little different. I think it's such an insularity. Uh, I don't think they embrace all the theories because some of the theories embraced by the Christian right also include anti-Semitism. Not all, but some. Mm. But this combination of conspiracy that the, the, the state is aggressively secular, they, there's a war on religion and this is part of it. Some deny COVID is even an issue. Others believe that the vaccines are sent to control us or that they're made with aborted fetuses or whatever. There's all sorts of things going on and they've come together. And I actually think it's deeply anti-God because, wonderful story, when Darwin came forward with his theories, which weren't entirely original, of course, but he, I think he expanded on them. Uh, there were some Christians who rejected them, but not all. People tend to generalize. There were scientists who rejected Darwin. Some scientists said, no, don't believe it. A lot of Christians too. Many Christians said he was right. Uh, Charles Kingsley, who was a, a Church of England priest, uh, the author of the, the Water Babies and other novels, he was a friend of Darwin. When Darwin said evolution, I mean, he didn't exactly say that, but this is, this is what we believe. Charles Kingsley said, oh, how clever of God. <laughs> and if we're going to limit God to uh, a, 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 an absurd literalism of a, of a text that was written, as you know, during the Babylonian exile in response to a local creation myth it was never meant to be taken literally, then that's reducing God. Uh, the world is not 6,000 years old. The world is four and a half billion years old and never lies about its age. So, so th these people are actually reducing God to their own personal vigilante. And God is much greater than that. So I see them as 
Uh, I mean, they're extremely damaging because people are become ill or die because of, of what of their propaganda, but also they they give the church such an appalling reputation by their ironically anti-God position. Let me ask you something about that notion, though. Of I mean, obviously we've disnified God, as it were. We you know anthropomorphic notions of what God is, and I'm much more adherent to as people who listen to the podcast know that God is an action. God is a verb. It's not a noun. Um, it's not a thing that you can put your hand on or somebody you can talk to. Uh, particularly... He's an English man, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> he, he's a guy on a, on a chair with a white beard and a naughty and nice list. So I, I think that's actually Santa Claus. Well, that... I'm, I'm going to interrupt you again, but this is great. As a fr friend of mine... <laughs> He's a priest in England. His father, he's, he's dead now, but his father had been very ill and they thought they were going to lose him. And uh, his father said, I, I, I think I, I saw God. And my friend said, well, Dad, how do you know it was God? And he said, he was wearing an old Etonian tie. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know, Eton is the elite yeah. uh, practice. Well, and it must be from Eden, my friend. <laughs> he was very It must be from Eden. <laughs> yeah. Good fellow. I was caned and I turned out just fine. Thank you very much. Uh, no, but I was wondering about this notion, though, that when you were talking about God just now, I just thought, but you know, when you think in Old Testament terms, there is a wrathfulness, a judgment, a violence, you know, wipe them out, every man, woman, and child, cleanse the earth of them so that we can inhabit the space. And I think that when you talked about that that uh, vengeful idea of God that some people have, it does come from a source in the literature, does it not? Well, it does, but it's interesting that the, the Hebrew scriptures, and you know far more about them than I do, but of course, um, m most of rabbinical study is studying uh, commentary on the scriptures, particularly on five, part, five books of, of the Old Testament. And... I don't know of anyone in organized Judaism who concludes from their study that um, the world should be wiped out. And so, but they just don't believe that because there's a more sophisticated deconstruction of what is being said. As a Christian, I believe that you almost read them backwards. You read them through the prism, the prism of, of, the, of the New Testament, of the Gospels. Mm -hmm. And it's not a different God, but it's almost a completion of the story. And what you see in Jesus is, is not someone um, who is just going around um, being nice and kind. He is doing that, but it's far more than that. He, he, he has a, a narrative. There's a story of how we're supposed to live. And I think that the whole story of the of, of Bible is a crescendo up to these final stages of this is what we're meant to do. We, we, we live in community. We forgive others. We turn cheeks. We go to the, the most marginalized of society. Uh, we, we sit down with those who've persecuted and tried to hurt us and, and all of these things and, and judgment and peace and, and grace and inclusion. And I see this often in the church, but I'm afraid I, I also see the contrary and, and the contrary of that, the screaming anger does get a lot of media. And as someone who spent most of his life in media and is still in media, I'm not gonna say, oh, it's the fault of the media. It's not, these churches are out there and media's job is not to, to, to cover what the commonplace, it tends to cover what is not common. And so they get a, a, lot, of, a lot of press. I, 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 I write a, a very different point of view and I've never been denied a platform. 
Maclean's, Toronto Star, Globe and Mail, so on. I mean, these people are well are open to my ideas. They always print me. So there's no conspiracy or anything. Just that the, the those who are defying the law and screaming screaming about COVID and making a lot of noise obviously will be covered by media. I wanted to talk to you a bit about uh, Israel because I've always respected your depth of knowledge. You know, we had these uh, so-called peace deals that uh, Jared Kushner. Uh, secured based on from what I can understand from a distance uh, financial transactions in support of the by the Americans of uh, Gulf states um, and some other countries including my birth country of Morocco who, who which is always a moderate country in the in the region deciding well if this is there's some momentum here um, I always found that the, the whole idea of what he was doing was was simple-minded and and uh, retrograde that we will end up with way more problems than we have but um, I have a series you know my Israel series I did about nine years ago and it's on prime uh, Amazon Prime TV and somebody saw it and, and wrote me a letter and said hey when are you going to do the next one and I said well if a lot had changed in the last 10 years it would really be worth doing but I'm not sure it's really worth doing I think I did it then, and it's almost no different now. Where are, in your mind, where are we at when it comes to what Israel is a touchstone for the three uh, Western religions? Where, where, do, where do we find ourselves today? Well, geopolitically, things are, I believe, rather different. Uh, but the, the continuing injustice has not been addressed at all. It's got worse. Geopolitically, the rise of Iran as a Shia power and the empowering of Shia minorities in the Sunni Arab world uh, has led to a lot of people, particularly in the Gulf, to say, why, we, what's this thing about Israel? Why should we bother with Israel? There was a poll taken in Saudi Arabia that is opening up in spite of other things that are going on. And Overwhelmingly, what is the greatest threat to Saudi Arabia wasn't Israel, it was Iran. And so they see, they look at Israel, and a lot of people are saying, well, we, we, we have to be able to come to some sort of deal with them. And, and they have almost an admiration for Israel, too, because they see the technological, technological advances and, and military sophistication and, and, and so on. So all around the Gulf, which is effectively, I mean, Saudi Arabia controls what goes on in the Gulf. The idea that a, any, any Gulf nation said, yes, I agree with the Saudis to a point. No, they, they, and Jordan has no real influence and Jordan also is bold to, to Saudi Arabia. Um, but going the other side, Egypt, and of course, Morocco has always been moderate. So a, a lot of those countries that were officially or effectively at war with Israel are no longer. And they, some of them have alliances with Israel. Um, some are formal, some are informal, but there, there's very little opposition. Yes, in Jordan to a degree, because there are so many Palestinians there, to a degree in Egypt, um, but by and large, the Arab world is at peace. It's Iran that is the issue. If you look further beyond that, the old friends, Israel always had best friends in Western Europe. Well, it still has good friends in Britain and Germany to a degree Italy, Spain's never been a particular friend, but it's, it's new friends now, it's really good friends are Eastern Europe, India, 
Russia and China are very neutral. And I mean, Putin, who on a personal level is certainly not anti-Jewish. In fact, he's probably quite fellow Semitic. And I mean, he plays a certain game. His interests are Russia's, uh, but he's not opposed to Israel. And it's, I mean, we, we, we know that there have been deals that have been engineered through Moscow because of what a million or so Russians living in Israel. There are a lot of contests. The countries are, are I've always been amazed at this link between Russia and Israel and how many people in, in Russia have family in Israel and vice versa. And there, there are certain contexts that, um, so all of this has changed. Now, America is still a friend, but not as close as it was. And in Western Europe, although governments aren't opposed, I think the general view amongst people is far less pro-Israel than it used to be. But the open wound, the birth defect of Israel is the Palestinians. There is a group of people there who have been treated very badly from the, the, the very beginning. Since the foundation of Israel, by its very nature, Palestinians have been not been denied what they should. Have they been badly led? Yes. Have there been acts of terrorism sometimes that targeted children and innocent people? Yes. All of this is true. But until and unless you can have some sort of deal with the Palestinians that gives them dignity and justice, there will never be complete peace there. And I don't see that happening. More than that, I think it's further away than it ever was. There's, there won't be a two-state solution. Um, militancy, both religious and secular, has, has grown exponentially. Um, Jerusalem. On both sides. Well, the settler movement and the right wing uh, uh, led by Likud. Oh, I see what you mean. Yes. Right. Yeah. On one side and the Palestinian leadership. Um, you know, look at what happens when people make Israelis and, and, and other countries make overt peace is you endanger the lives of those who do that peace. So if the Palestinians make a deal, there's, from what I understand, just as much of a fear that that will be the cost of their lives to make that deal. Yeah, there could be. I mean, I, I don't think uh, Islamic fundamentalism is a major issue. I... No, I don't think it's not about that. I, I think it's about uh, decades of oppression. It, it's like when, yeah. you know, when people talk about dysfunction, in indigenous uh, uh, groups around the world in terms of their ability to govern themselves. And well, if you try to kill people for 400 years, you know, eventually it doesn't turn out well in terms of culture. Uh, and it takes a lot to heal the wound. I mean, you know, the old Bible story of 40 years in the desert is to stop thinking like a slave, right? But when it comes to this situation, we're still in that, that place where the oppression is overt uh, and the mistrust is, is profound. You know, when I talk to my uh, friends in Israel who lived through, um, you know, being a, a brigadier and a, a, a paratrooper and, you know, yeah, I got called up. My wife drove me to the front and um, one guy came off one of the air, airlines as a, a steward. And uh, I said, did you lose anyone in that uh, particular war with uh, at Lebanon? And, yeah, four of my men died. I said, do you think about it? He says, I try not to. That's what I can do. But those wounds become internalized and that psyche becomes permanent in terms of, I, I'll put down my gun when you put down your gun. It, it's like when I was friends with somebody who was doing a film many years ago in Georgia and um, we were in Dillard, Georgia where they shot Deliverance and we were doing a horrible Canadian film. And uh, I spent a whole month there. John Lennon was shot while I was there and nobody there cared. 
<laughs> really never that one one person was talking oh he, he's, he's just one of those gay guys from england and it was like okay i'm in another world here but i'm driving into atlanta with one of the other actors who's a, a local actor and i say to him his name was stuart stuart culpepper and i say to him stuart uh, i'm canadian do you have like do you own a gun and he said yeah don't you and i said no no i don't own a gun yeah, I said, where do you keep your gun? And he points under the seat that he's driving and then he says, right there. And I said, why? He said, look, Ralph, I don't want to have a gun, but what if the other guy's got a gun? I need to have a gun. And I think that's where they're at. I, I, I think that everybody's afraid that if they put down their gun, the other one will, will, will wipe them out. So I, 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 that's on a primal level. At the same time, an average Palestinian and an average Israeli just wants to take their kids to school, have a good job and be decent people. So I, th I think they do. And whenever I'm there, I, I try to speak to people who, who aren't involved on the front lines, as it were. And you have to win their confidence first, particularly in the Palestinian community. But when you do, I mean, I, I'm I used to work in, in Northern Ireland and I came to Canada in 87. I mean, when all the peace Good Friday and so on. I, there were images. I, I, I've interviewed at length both Jerry Adams and Ian Paisley. He's, he's dead now. But mm -hmm. the idea of these men shaking hands was beyond comprehension. Yeah. And it's not perfect there. And things are risky. And uh, alas, Brexit has made it worse. Um, there's a new generation of people who don't even understand what it's all about, but they're ready to, to be violent if needs be. But what they've achieved is remarkable. I mean, Tony Blair, I, I'm not a huge fan, but all those people coming together, he just allowed it to happen, I suppose, enabled it. But maybe it was fatigue, they'd had enough, uh, but it was quite, and, and a lot of other factors too. The Irish Republic became far more secular, um, which there was more in bourgeoisment of Northern Ireland, because when people have money, right. uh, politics are, are less important. And if, if you live in a nice house in a suburb, suddenly, but they, they did manage to carve out something which is not a perfect, but it's a piece. And compared to what was, it, it, it's heavenly. So it, it can be done. It can be done, but it ain't easy. So when people say religion divides us, what do you say? Oh, of course it does. But any, anything divides us. I mean, I, I, I find it a bit glib. I, I really do. Um, you know, on Twitter, there's always those keyboard warriors who will talk about, oh, you know, Sky Fairy and Nazi soldiers with God is with us on their belt buckles. By the way, it was First World War, not Second, but that doesn't matter. And all this stuff. And Hitler was a. I've, I've heard all of these arguments and they annoy me a bit because some of my closest friends are atheists and I love them dearly. And we're, we're dear close friends. Intellectual atheism is one thing, but the, 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 the Twitter atheism is. Um, and what war has caused, uh, religion has caused more war than anything else. I don't know if it has. Uh, it's caused a lot. But then when religion is the, the primary dynamic of, of human society, and human society will always have wars, it's no surprise that the main cause is religion. So, of course, I mean, you know, 30 years war. Yes, that was, but it wasn't only about religion. It was about emerging powers. Um, was the American Civil War about religion? Was the Second World War about religion? It, it really wasn't. And the First World War was about empires. These are the, 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 but religion can divide in Northern Ireland. Yeah, but Northern Ireland was more about tribe. 
it was two different groups of people. I mean, th th there were, yes, certainly at one point you would find Protestants who who thought this idolatry of, of, the, of the Roman Catholic population was terrible, but it, it stopped being that a long time ago. It was about a group of people who could trace their heritage to, to parts of Scotland and happened to be Presbyterian, said, this is our tribe and we've had power for this long and now, now we're under threat and that's your tribe. And, and Yeah, you see, I think it tends to be about power and, and oh, it, not, it not so much about religion because if the Protestants minority has more power than the Catholic majority, then you're going to have what you have. If you have Hutus and Tutsis and, you know, in the colonial frame, what you do is you put the minority group in charge of a country because they're beholden to you because without you as their patron, they're in danger of being wiped out themselves. Well, that's true. Uh, of course, when Northern Ireland was created, the, Pro the Protestants were a majority. Uh, you had the six counties, there were more counties in Ulster, but six counties were, were cut off to make Northern Ireland in the early 1920s. And you had this Protestant majority, but yeah. population demographics, and now it, it's probably about 50-50 now. Yes, but the best job went to the Protestant. It's like oh. in, in Israel, the best job didn't go to the my group, the Sephardic tribe. It went to the Ashkenazi Eastern European group because Israel is an Eastern European construct. It is not endemic or indigenous to being in that part of the world. If you were from the Mizrahi Jews, the Iraqis, the Iranians, the, the Syrians, you know, and then the Sephardic Jews, the Moroccans, the Algerians, the Tunisians, um, we ate like these people. We spoke like, we sing like these people. We are these people. We're just another branch of the tree of these people. I remember once I was doing a, an interview for Midday and it was the first Gulf War. And on the other side of the conversation in Jordan, in Amman was a professor uh, of Middle East studies. And before we went on, I had my little telex, he had his little telex in his ear and the camera was shooting him. And he said, who am I talking to? And they said, his name is Ralph Ben Mergi. And then he goes, oh, Ben Mergi, huh. We had cousins, right? Because <laughs> that could have been Ben Mergi, right? Instead of Ben Mergi. Um, I, I would argue, I don't know when you were last in Israel, but those divisions, I don't think are there. Very, yeah, no. There I mean, a lot of intermarriage. I mean, you, you the Ethiopian issue, Falashas, I mean, that, that has... Well, that, look, it, look, there's all kinds, but really there is a cultural bias. When we get together, I was there two years ago the last time, when we get together with our friends who are of Yemenite uh, extraction, our joking conversation is which one of us is lower in the totem pole, the Moroccan or the Yemenite. Um, and if you look at the power structures, how many Sephardim are on the currency? How many Sephardims are Supreme Court justices? One in 10. You know, how many uh, Sephardim run major organizations? It's, you know, it, it, it is, uh, how many cultural centers are, are, are built for Western music as opposed to Eastern, Middle Eastern music? I, I agree, but I mean, what has happened? The, the Labour Party was an Ashkenazi party. Absolutely. And but the Labour Party hasn't been in power for a long time. Yeah, but uh, Likud's an Ashkenazi party. They just learned how to uh, incorporate things that they they thought the Sephardim wanted to hear. Shas is, and, is the uh, actual Sephardic party, and it's right-wing and reactionary. Yeah, and Menek and Begin, who, who I think actually did have a, a great sympathy for and, a, and a, an affinity with, but, I mean, certainly courted that vote. It was a more conservative vote. Yeah, I, I, I just, it seems to me that I'm always surprised by the degree of intermarriage and, and 
But I don't think those issues are the major ones for Israeli society. Now, I think I think Russian Jewry changed a lot for the country, actually. Yeah, they now have Christmas trees that they sell at Christmas because they they have Sylvester uh, for New Year's, and they do they had they celebrated uh, Eastern Orthodox Christmas uh, in the in the old country. Uh, they sell ham in the supermarkets where the Russians uh, shop. So it's a whole different thing. Um, so yeah. we so for some people the easy conversation is that religion is the problem. How is religion the solution to what to what ails the world in, in so many ways these days? How, how can religion well, help? Religion, as I said earlier, certainly can be a problem and it can be a cause of division, often is a, a cause of division. And there are these cliches, I, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. I'm not really sure what that means. I think it's just a cop out really. Um, I don't talk about religion as such. I mean, I have a relationship. I believe I have a relationship with, with my creator. I'm a Christian and it's with, I believe the son of God with Jesus. And the teaching of my Messiah is based on peace. And when I speak to people every day, pretty much, who are in pain, now they, they're mostly Christians because they're people in my church. But when I speak to them and they've lost the partner or they're in physical pain, or they're frightened. It's very rare for us to pray together, and it's very rare for us to talk about God. It's mainly um, me just listening. Now, I could say, I think that is a form of prayer. Yes, okay, but really it's just, look, I, I was changed. I was made a better person by a relationship with God. If you want to call that religion, fine. It can improve people. It can it, it can change the world. It can make the world a better place. Um, but if it becomes religiosity, if it becomes very pedantic and rules and regulations, it can do it can do enormous harm. I, I've seen ecumenical groups coming together. I've seen when when Christians and Jews and Muslims, in particular, other faiths too, work together. How beautiful it can be, because they do find points of unity, and. Those points of unity are, are based in, in love and, and empathy. So it can do good. And I rather like the place of the church these days because we, in most countries at least, we simply cannot assume, well, we can't assume power. We can't even assume acceptance. I spoke to a, a priest earlier uh, uh, today. He said there are parts of London where wearing a collar, he, he could be spat at. And it's never happened to me, but you have to earn your stripes, as it were. You have we have to reprove or prove to people what Christianity really is. So we have to work harder, and we can't uh, rest on anything, and we have to deal with all the all the nonsense and all, and all the baggage. So in that way, yes, we can we can do good. We can bring people together. We can most of what of what someone who is ordained. Most of what we do, I think I speak for most people here, at least in my denomination. Most of what we do is to help people with. Um, finding homes, uh, income security, food, full belly, um, certain human dignity, immigration status. And when I, when I was first ordained, I thought, I thought I'd be going out there, you know, arguing the faith with, most of what I do is not that. Most of what I do is, is more sort of arguing with people in, in local authorities to make sure someone can get into a shelter. So yes, that is good work. I do it though, and this is important because people might say, well, become a social worker, which I think I am to a certain degree. But I do it because I honestly am convinced that I have a personal relationship 
with the living God. So what, when those are words that people can say, and they're often not words that connect with the modern person. What is a living relationship with God? What does that actually mean? That I am convinced that I'm not alone, that I'm living in the presence of my creator, that when I pray, when I do morning prayer and I light a little candle in front of me and I go through the office of the day and I pray, that at its best, I feel like I'm almost floating on a wave. Not always, but sometimes. And I always feel as though I'm speaking to a great source of wisdom and love, that I feel that love is a reality, that there is such a thing as a human community, that we all have a greater purpose, that we all have innate dignity because we are creatures of, of innate goodness and love. So how do you extrapolate that when you think of a cosmos and a universe that literally has, you know, trillions of stars, millions of galaxies? Do you, is it too human centered to think that this is all about the miracle of our particular lives on this particular dirt ball in this particular galaxy? As I mentioned earlier, Charles Kingsley when confronted with Darwin, oh, how clever of God. I don't know. Um, I, I think perception is very important here. Um, we've only been given one part of the story. You know, the, the darkened room and you're trying to feel your way around and you think of one thing and the lights go on and it's entirely another. And I don't think we'll know the true story on this earth. I think this is only the land of shadows and real life hasn't begun yet. So I don't know that. I mean, yes, centered on us, on humans, and maybe there'll be contact with another species one day, I don't know. Uh, but um, I believe the gospel story and, and, I, and I believe in a metaphorical sense, the creation story. I mean, I, I would emphasize here, the Bible is not divine dictation. I believe it's inspired. I think it's the work of God and the word of God. And it contains truth, but it also contains, contains metaphor and poetry. So and it's, it's the work of God because a person has to make themselves available to the miracle of creation to have written the words? No, I think it's the word of God. I mean, I'm describing the work of God. Um, but what I wanted to say was I don't think it is literally true. I think you can take the Bible literally or you can take it seriously, but not both. Because I don't think it's a document that's meant to be taken literally. As, nor do I. I, I. I live in the metaphor of, of Holy Scriptures, but I also see it as the more spiritual counseling work I do with people, the more I, I feel that the, the, be, the be, beginning point of the work is, is, is the availability of the person. Hineni, where am I? I am here. I am here. You know, Viktor Frankl, when dealing with a woman dying, a young woman dying in a concentration camp hospital bed, staring outside, and he says, what are you doing? I'm, I'm looking at the tree. I'm talking to the tree. And he thinks, oh, she's becoming delusional as she dies. He says, oh, well, what is the tree telling you? And the tree, and she says, I am here. I am here. I am life eternal. And to me, it's about being in the in the Hebrew word a chef of the flow of creation. And that our our job is to be available to that, you know, mm. not not to fixate ourselves on uh, which specific way is the way, because that there's a exceptionalism that can lead us to kill each other when really we want to come together 
Well, yes, but it's interesting you mentioned Viktor Frankl, because Viktor Frankl, as I'm sure you know, had an enormous respect for Christianity. Yes. And, and, and remarked on how in the death camps, it was the, 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 the deepest Christians who, who could cope uh, better than other people. I mean, he couldn't cope well with this living hell. But he was, there's a beautiful quotation about love. I mean, he, the center for him was love. This everything, although it's man's search for meaning, love, it, 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 it's the quintessence of it all. And yes, exceptionalism, you know, religions have changed. So, I mean, I, I shouldn't speak about others. Christianity has certainly changed in, in, in its self-perception and, and its self-regard. And there has been a colossal rethinking of what should be. Now, it's always been there. And it's always been part of the narrative. But certainly since the Second World War, things began to change up. The First World War, to a large extent, was Christendom killing itself. Now, you had many people dying from outside, huge Indian army. Uh, you had the Ottoman Empire as well. But to a large extent, it was Europe killing itself. And it made churches think very hard, but it was really the Second World War and the Holocaust that led to, I mean, no church is the same really after the Holocaust. The Roman Catholic Church had Vatican II, uh, it was 20, 18, 15 years later, but it really rethought. Certainly the Church of England, uh, the Orthodox Church to a certain degree, it was sheltered rather because it was under such oppression. Um, but there's been a rethinking in, in all churches and a great number of theologians. And, and so exceptionalism is um, it's what, make, it will make, what makes American Christianity so troubling at times is you combine the potential exceptionalism of Christianity with the exceptionalism of American nationalism. Other countries don't have this. Britain had it during the 19th century. But this greatest country in the world, we live in the greatest country in the world. What fascinates me is I never heard that in Europe and I don't hear it in Europe. But Americans use it a lot, and Canadians do it a bit. And, yes. think, and here's a paradox. They're using it, actually, to replicate what they hear in America. What do you mean greatest country in the world? Can't you just be nice, great, in your own way, but greatest? What, you, what are you greatest at what? And quite clearly, these countries aren't the greatest. But you combine America the greatest with our religion the greatest. That's very dangerous. I mean, you may not have... Well, we have separation of church and state. No, you don't. <laughs> we have more mingling of church and state than any other country I've been to, and I'm pretty well-traveled. Yeah, I did a series called God Bless America uh, in 2008 around... Uh, we also ended up with being in Colorado for Obama becoming the nominee of the Democratic Party for the election that was coming up. But I spoke to the whole range of people um, from humanist, atheist to fundamentalists. And uh, the thing you can say about America is its dynamic range is, is extreme. You know, other countries moderate their, their ends as it were, but this is a country where you see some of the greatest things and some of the worst things, the inequality, the hypocrisy, and yet <clears throat> the innovation and the adventurism of America are ex extremely interesting. But, you know, I always liked being Canadian because you, you we'd get up at a, Nobody even questions why you sing anthems at sports events, but nonetheless, there you are standing there and everybody's supposed to be singing Oh Canada, but they're all looking at the jumbotron to make sure they get the second verse words right because they got changed a little while ago and you're not sure. <laughs> and in America, you're covering your heart and singing your brains out. Um, 
And, and no one sings the French. But you know what? It's interesting you talk about that because, again, that's very American. Yeah. Because yeah. we don't do that in Europe. In in soccer, big soccer matches in Europe. Now, before an international game, if if England is playing Germany, then anthems will be sung. But if when clubs are playing, the, the equivalent of the NHL or whatever it is, you don't have anthems. There's no singing. It, it because no, the I, singing in a in a in a in a, a football match in Europe is is entirely different, and to uh, North American ears, uh, such a strange and religious experience where you hear people singing these songs of their team all the way through the game, you know, just lilting very, away as we play. Yes, and that's very perceptive of you because I've, I've written about this. It is the new religion. Yeah. Uh, you, you go together, if it's, if it's a big team, there'll be 70, say 50,000 people and 40,000 are your congregation. And you know the same hymns and you worship the same individuals. Um, and it, it's, it's a great collective. And there used to be a big banner at Manchester United. Uh, I think it said something like Manchester United, the religion or something like that. I, I, I knew the uh, the chaplain up there and that used to get to him a little bit, but yes, it, it is it's very communal and people, I've often wondered who wrote these songs and, and, and who first started singing them so that everyone else could sing them. Because some, some of them can be very current. And um, so, but, so it, it's much more, much more tribal, which is why the Super League recently was- Yeah, was, it was a disaster, football liturgy. Um, so going forward, how post pandemic where do you think your church will be where do you think religion will be in the scheme of things um well i'm hoping for it very much it'll be a gradual return as i mentioned i think we'll have to do simultaneous liturgy or worship so well, we'll be in the church, but I've got a feeling some people will choose to watch online. Uh, we've attracted some more people, most churches have from outside of our normal area, but there are some, maybe older people or just whatever, who didn't want to come to church, who will watch, watch online. So I think we'll have to, the technology, it's not difficult, we'll have cameras there and the service will be online. It'll be on YouTube, It'll, you can, um, so that will happen. I'd like to think it would have made us more aware of uh, the preciousness of community and of life after a time of loss. And it might do that. Although maintaining that long-term will be the challenge because it's a bit like when, when it, you've, you've, you've had pain and it stops and you have that feeling of euphoria, but it doesn't last because pretty soon you just go back to normal and, and that, that just is human nature. But I'd like to try and hold on to that you know there are going to be so many books written about COVID once it all starts to decline, both novel, you know, what will be the first great COVID novel? It's being written now quite clearly. And, um, but, but all the nonfiction books of what happened and why. And there'll be, and there'll be religion-based books about um, the post-COVID church, none of which I think I'd bother to read because I'm tired of reading books like that. But, I'd, I, you know, I, this is a disappointing answer, but I don't think that there will be major changes. I think there'll be a relief, there'll be a release, we'll return, we'll have electronic worship as well as physical worship. Um, we'll try to bandage up the wounds, we'll have the commemoration services for those we couldn't celebrate because we couldn't get together. But it, it won't take too long before we go back to business as usual. It's good and bad. Yeah, that, 
I, I wish we could hope for more because we've really laid bare the, the kind of inequity of our society, our society that we all kept telling everybody was such a wonderful thing with equal opportunity, which is just nonsense. And our care of elders, of our elders, you know, so many things have been laid bare that we're just sitting there for years and decades on end. Well, we can hope for more and we can try for more, but I'm, I'm being realistic. I don't know if we'll, we'll achieve more. You know, the I, I've seen care of older people. You do it as a cleric and most of us have known how bad it is for a long time. People weren't listening. They've listened now for a bit, but will they continue to listen? Mm. I think there was some physical achievements. We will probably now have a Canadian ability to, to manufacture vaccines. There probably will be an overhaul of how seniors are cared for. I hope there's a long-term commitment to it. I don't know if there will be. Uh, well, there's other things that we must worry about that are existential in their own nature, climate crisis being the first well, and foremost, and eco-spirituality still not taking a front seat, uh, You know, having worked with progressive groups. Uh, the secularism of the progressive movement, I think, is one of the pieces where we miss the opportunity to discuss with people the sacredness of this existence and the sacredness of life as a bedrock foundation of criteria for how you move forward and actions you take. I'd like to tell you a quick story. A couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, I do some work occasionally for the Broadbent Institute, which is the NDP think tank type of thing. And uh, they've been very good to me. So I'll, I'll chair panels and things like that. But they asked me to speak, I think it was Edmonton. Yeah, pretty sure, I don't think it was Calgary. Pretty sure it was Edmonton. And um, to speak to one of their groups. And I, I got there and it was a lot of people, about 150 people, a number of people. And I sat at the back and before me, there was a panel and the, um, it was, <laughs> how should I put it? It was very much on the left as you would think, but to the point where if I was writing, I should be careful here. <laughs> if I was writing a comedy show about a- A parody. It, it was, I, let, let's, let's put this as kind as possible. I wasn't at all surprised by some of the things they were saying. I had heard them before, but it, these were good people, but it was a lot of angst, you know, and you know, I'm so sorry I'm alive. And it was a bit of that, but any, anyway, I thought to myself, Oy vey. <laughs> I am gonna, I, I'm speaking about the social gospel. I'm going to go down like a lead balloon here. It's going to be good. And uh, because they didn't, anyway, I, I stood up and I spoke for half an hour, 30, 40 minutes about how the gospels are rev a rev revolutionary text, how Jesus is communal, socialistic, um, who always stands with the marginalized and the poor. And anyway, this went on and on. And I got a standing ovation. It was very moving. I got a step, I mean, it seemed to me pretty much everyone just stood up to a, for a long time. And a long lineup of people outside who wanted to speak to me. I am so enthusiastic about trying to restore um, some form of a, a Christian wing to the organized left. It, the NDP was very much a formation with Tommy Douglas and, and, and mm -hmm. progressive evangelicals. The Labour Party in Britain, it was always said to owe more to Methodism than to Marxism, nonconformist Christians, the radical movement, dissenting Christians. That went some time ago. And, and, and it's not the fault of either. Well, it's the fault of both sides, actually. But it's just, 
it's not there anymore. And I would love to restore it. There are many progressive Christians and um, some of them are so progressive, they're no longer Christian. And I find that regrettable. And actually, I have little patience for it. I come from a working class British home and I've, I've got a limit, a limited tolerance for middle class left wingers, Christians who are embarrassed about talking about God. You don't have to. I mean, you know, whatever. <laughs> don't do me the favor. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but let me ask you this. Is capitalism a proper container for true spiritual religious action and thought? Is it, can it, or is it the change kind that, of... Change it to Christian. Ask me, the, ask me the question again and say Christian instead of religious. All right. Is capitalism a, a, a proper container for Christian action and thought? No. So here we are. <laughs> I know I struggle with this in, in all aspects. I, you know, I certainly have been, when I read what you say, uh, you're talking to people who are neoliberal in their uh, outlook of life, that they believe that individual, and I would argue that uh, the Protestant movement itself, in some ways, was one of the reasons why we end up with this atomized view of things where you don't need to congregate, you don't need to come together, you can do this in your house by yourself, you don't even need to be an ordained minister, you can be Joel Osteen, you can have a theology prosperity, you know, uh, you, you can see this as you still have your responsibility is to go out there and get it. Uh, well, that, yeah, that's a lot. But let's give the reformers a break here. Reformation was multifaceted, but th th there were some very strong socialistic impulses that came from the Protestant Reformation. Now, later on, it, it was rather transformed and it, now it's become crass and just ridiculous and prosperity gospel. But if, if you read Zwingli and Luther and Calvin for all of their thoughts and Haas and others. I mean, there was there, there was something very beautiful actually in, in their ideas. Even the early Puritans, for all of their thoughts, respect for the intellect. The English Civil War with its Calvinist victory uh, unleashed, empowered, I suppose is a better word, some very interesting ideas. And Milton was Cromwell's Latin secretary, uh, readmitting the Jews into England in the 1650s. Uh, an interest in it, nothing, it's, it's never complete. What, what you've seen. Well, no, it's not. There are always going to be the pieces that we can move things through. But in essence, is it an inevitability that Protestant thought led to capitalist structures and, I, and I don't know. support of them? Well, I mean, if the work, look at what do we call the Protestant work ethic? Well, I know, but that, right? uh, I'm not sure if I've never it reinvented quite, serfdom. I've never quite embraced that because the Reformation failed in Europe. The reason, if you look at the end of the Thirty Years' War, but even before then, the, the Reformation, England and Scotland, uh, in France at one point, it looked like it, it would be victorious, then it lost. In Poland, it looked like it would be victorious, then it lost. Czechoslovakia, the same. It really only had Scandinavia, little bit of the Low Countries, Holland principally, uh, and northern Germany, but its great victory was immigration. It was the new world, America, yeah. the Protestant superpower. So wait a minute, let me get back because we got to wrap up in a second. So the capitalist container cannot hold the Christian 
ethic. The logical, the, the logical consequence of the Gospels is socialism. Hmm. The inevitable logical consequence of the Gospels is socialism. So this, it, where does this position you as a pulpit leader? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, I'm a, a mere parson. I don't do. Um, I, I, res I respect the church and I respect, I'm not, I, only, I don't speak for the church. I just speak for me. I don't think I say anything that will be shocking to most people who, who I spend time with in Christian circles. Um, the congregations, if, if you stood in front of a, a nice Anglican group, you know, 200 people in a church, would they, if your sermon was about that, would, would they be able to accept what you're saying or would they think that you were in some way a rogue? I don't think I would do that because I think it, it could divide unnecessarily. Uh, I wouldn't perhaps preach like that. But however, I preach a lot and what I preach is fairly radical. And uh, you, you may be surprised by what you'd find in Anglican churches. You, you, an enormous amount of, of compassion and care. And, and when people spend time with the, more, the poor and the marginalized, they don't, well, I don't know those who come out of that experience saying, wow, we need more capitalism. They have a very different view. If you really do believe in, in the absolute e equal dignity of the poor and the rich, of all people, then sharing and the constant revolution of, of empathy and love and selflessness. It's not that capitalism by its, well, people who embrace capitalism and, and, and live within it and work within it, and I include myself in that, they're not bad people, but the system is not created to achieve goodness. Within capitalism, you, you get enormous acts of goodness and kindness and charity, absolutely true. But the system itself is not designed for that. They are, they are the human consequences of capitalism. The system itself is, is, is mean. I mean, in a way, when Anne Rant and her friends, what they were saying was actually quite logical. If you really, you know, the, the open market, I'm sorry, if you fall behind, that's the way it is. Well, hmm. that, that, that is certainly a consequence of capitalism. And it can be controlled as it is in Canada, as it is in, in large parts of Europe, or it can be left completely open. Under Mrs. Thatcher in Britain, I, I was still in Britain, she tried to completely uh, liberate capitalism. And it made a lot of people very rich. And it made a lot of people very poor and it yeah. destroyed communities. And that's what will happen. Some people will benefit, but others certainly won't. And there's no such thing as society. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. How she could say that. And then to uh to see communities destroyed. Being destroyed, it was and, and they've and they've never recovered. And we're I'm reading a wonderful book right now called Donut Economics which really deals with a, a different way of seeing economics. And, you know, I remember when journalism school, we had to take economics and I was always terrified of the numbers, but then I realized half of the converse, the course was about philosophies and, and a view of what a human being is and homo economicus. And what, what they did is they cherry picked Adam Smith. They took out the parts that served the purpose of the individual's right to flourish and didn't include the, the, second part of what he said which was within the context of a society that is supportive and caring and need of need uh they just left that part out and, and off we went with this idea that then got picked up and amplified and turned into a cartoon 
that became neoliberalism and Milton Friedman and Hayek and Kuznets and all these people who take what we call economy is really just the game of the rich at this point. It has nothing to do with society as a whole, as an integrated whole. And this donut economic idea is to be able to say without the underpinnings, without the social support and underpinning, you don't, you have to raise people up to get them to a point where they can succeed. You don't just let people sit where they are and somehow the bar will come down to them when enough rich people give them enough money to do things. So, you know, that whole trickle down thing it was fascinating to see Joe Biden say uh, in his first address to Congress, trickle down economics is, is false and dead. Uh, and in America, that has been a religion and around the Western world, that is a religion, including an aid to other countries. If you just drop a few pennies on the road on your way out the door, they're going to be okay. So you're, you're a hopeful person, obviously, or you wouldn't be bothering with all this. Um, what's your hope for for us now? Well, climate change is, as you mentioned, is a problem go way beyond beyond my life. I I I do have terrible fears. I I wonder if it's already too late. I don't know. I I've got a lot of faith in the next generation, though. I see we have four children, and and I see their views, and and they're so naturally progressive. And I've done a lot of writing in the past seven years or so on issues of sexuality and Christianity, and. A lot of young people are almost post-gay. I mean, to the, they, they why is it, why, it's irrelevant. I mean, they just, they, it's, there's total acceptance. And, and so younger people, um, I, I think there's a progressive streak in them that is very encouraging. Uh, and I think we'll see some wonderful changes in terms of racial justice and economic justice. That's gonna take a lot longer. International, Equality, I, I don't know, it, it's beyond me. As we agreed, it's been exposed by by COVID, but there's still, there is so much to, to be done and self-interest is a major player in this. And um, we don't have the time, but Brexit, for example, people were very anxious to condemn everyone who voted Brexit as being some redneck and racist and lunatic. and. Um, although I was very much against Brexit, and most of the people I know voted against Brexit, I do know some people who supported Brexit, and they're none of those things. They're actually quite intelligent, good people. Um, we didn't listen to them. We don't even listen to part of our own society, let alone people in Africa and Asia and elsewhere. Yeah. So we, we have to be... Rem Climate change will make us listen, because there, there'll be waves of tens tens of millions of people moving from continent to continent but otherwise i just wonder if we'll listen but you know what um i was very cynical skeptical about joe biden i think a lot of what he's done has been wonderful uh i didn't have much time for the democrat party it's moving in a very interesting direction right now so there is hope canada though um, our Liberal Party has become extremely central. They always laugh when people talk about Trudeau being this terrible left winger. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> the NDP, provincially and federally, keeps on speaking common sense that most people agree with, but people still won't vote for them. Well, there's a group that will vote for them. And there's another group, including a, a large group of progressives that believe that they have one foot in the 20th century and one foot in the 21st century because of certain... Uh, allegiances they have to have to the idea that work is work 
and you have to protect jobs. So when you get a Rachel Notley, who's a, you know, a, a very competent person, but she has to say, we have to keep the tar sands going. We have to keep these oil jobs moving. Uh, Horgan saying, we're going to have the best environmental record in the country and then putting up the uh, liquefied natural gas plant site C, which is gonna create more carbon than you can imagine. So these are things that become part of what governance is about and what power really does yeah. is moderate whatever your view is. I, I've done a lot of work with green parties. And one of the reasons that people would say, well, you know, come on, there's only gonna get a few seats. One of the liberating pieces of being in a group like that is that you get to think about the right thing to do and the best thing to do without having to constantly think of what's the most marketable thing to do. True. Right. So it, 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 it's the freedom to, to think and to say what. So if, you, if the best thing to do for homelessness is to follow people like Finland with their housing first policy, where you just give people the place, you don't ask them to jump through enough hoops that they deserve the place. You give them a place to live and you'll watch their life move up. So these are, you know, Greens give ideas now. They're the feeder system for the NDP, who is the feeder system for the Liberals, right? You know, that's the way it works. True. All right, I've got to say goodbye. I could talk to you forever. Uh, Reverend Michael Corin has been my guest on Not That Kind of Rabbi. Um, you can read his writings uh, in many different places, his books, his uh, social media presence, his columns in newspapers and periodicals. Um, one of our uh, really, for me, a real treasure uh, in terms of uh, progressive thinking in this country. And uh, um, I, I thank you very much for being with me, Michael. I truly appreciate it. Oh, it's my great pleasure, really. Thank you so much. Michael Corrin. Uh, I'm Ralph Benmergi. If you want to support this uh, podcast, go to patreon.com slash NTKR. And uh, a few shekels would always be appreciated. So patreon.com slash ntkr and uh, visit me at the Not That Kind of Rabbi Facebook page. Take care of each other. Be safe and be well. Thank you and bye.